Hi, everybody, and welcome to Macro Markets with Guggenheim Investments, where we invite leaders from our investment team to offer their analysis of the investment landscape and the economic outlook. I'm Jay Diamond, Head of Thought Leadership for Guggenheim Investments, and I'll be hosting today. We are recording this episode on April 12th, 2023. As we have been discussing in recent podcast episodes, March was an unusually volatile month thanks to the turmoil in corners of the banking system, the swift regulatory response, and another 25 basis point rate hike by the Federal Reserve. Now that we are midway through April, the markets seem to have compartmentalized these events and settled down, for the time being turning their attention to the latest macro data and quarterly earnings season. But are things back to where they were before Silicon Valley Bank pierced everyone's consciousness? Well, sharing his insight on this topic for us is Justin Takata, a managing director and head of our investment-grade corporate credit sector team. In his role, Justin oversees the group responsible for one of the largest sector allocations in many of our portfolios. There's a lot to talk about in his sector, so his visit is especially timely. But before we get to Justin, just a note that later in the podcast, we will be answering two listener questions. And first, let's get a quick update on the macroeconomic backdrop from our U.S. economist, Matt Bush. Matt, the floor is yours. Thanks, Jim. Recent economic data has helped clarify the outlook for the next several months, indicating that the economy is losing momentum but not falling off a cliff, and that inflation is coming down, but only gradually. The March jobs report showed the economy added 236,000 jobs in March, close to consensus expectations and a deceleration from February's upwardly revised 326,000. As there was some reversal of earlier job gains that was driven by abnormally warm winter weather in January and February. This job growth in March is still a solid rate of job creation, but under the surface, we are starting to see some cracks. The cyclical and more rate-sensitive sectors where we've been looking for losses has started to show declines, though they're modest so far. These sectors showing job loss included manufacturing, construction, retail, and temporary help services. It's also worth noting that the survey week for the payrolls data came too early to capture much post-Silicon Valley bank fallout. The good news in the jobs numbers really came from wages, which are now growing around a 3.2% annualized pace, half of what it was in January 2022, and a rate that the Fed will see as consistent with 2% inflation. At least part of the slowdown in wage growth has been the surprising recovery in labor supply. We've seen the labor force participation rate rise for the past four months, after gains in participation were basically flat for all of 2022, and Chair Powell basically wrote off any further gains back at the November FOMC meeting. Labor supply is also getting a boost from a rebound in immigration after being depressed in 2020 and 2021. And lower wage growth is also consistent with recent data showing job openings coming down as labor demand cools and with reduced labor market churn as the quits rate trends lower. So for the Fed, this is all good news. The labor market is cooling without a rise in unemployment. But job growth is still running at an unsustainable pace according to their projections. And more importantly, the inflation numbers are not as encouraging as the labor market data. In March, the core CPI rose at a 4.7% annualized pace, still well above the Fed's 2% target. The details in the CPI numbers were mixed. The bad news was that even with supply chain stress indicators rapidly improving, core goods prices rose 2.2% annualized over the month, which was the largest increase since last August. The good news in the CPI report was shelter inflation. We've been anticipating that inflation here would roll over, but monthly inflation rates had remained stubbornly high, 
but we did see a sharp drop in March with annualized monthly inflation for rent of primary residents slowing from 9.5% to 6%, which was the sharpest deceleration for this category since 1999. If sustained, this drop would be very positive news for inflation, given that shelter is 43% of the core CPI index and has by far been the biggest contributor to recent inflation. The most important category for the Fed is core services excluding shelter. If we also strip out health insurance prices for better comparability with the PCE inflation data, we see services prices were up 5.3% annualized over the month and really have not slowed down at all over the past several months. We continue to expect inflation here will cool off based on falling wage growth and based on service sector surveys of businesses saying they plan to ease price growth. But the lack of progress in getting inflation in this category down will keep the Fed worried about the trajectory for inflation. So taking both the jobs report and CPI numbers together, a May rate hike still looks likely in our view, but given signs the labor market and wages are softening and will soften further, the probability is rising that they won't need to hike much beyond May. That's all I have. Back to you, Jay. Thanks, Matt Bush. Now, Justin Takata, welcome again, and thanks for taking the time to chat with us today. Oh, well, thanks for having me, Jay. Now, Justin, let's begin with a little level setting on what we will be talking about today investment-grade corporate bonds. What defines investment-grade? What kinds of securities are included in this universe? How big is the market? Who are the typical issuers and buyers of investment-grade credit? Give us a little summary. When you think about the investment-grade market, I think it's going to be predominantly corporate issuers. And when you think about corporate issuers, think about you know things that you see every day, whether it's Apple or Walmart, or General Motors, and these can range in ratings from AAA all the way down to B. And our market's organized in what we call a corporate index, which sits at around $6 trillion worth of investment-grade corporate credit. You know, outside that index, the overall market is closer to $9 trillion. But again, mostly corporate issuers. And the use of the proceeds for that financing can run the gambit of capital expenditures, debt refinancing, M&A, and of course, equity-friendly activities such as share repurchases. This debt also can range within the investment-grade scope. It largely consists of senior unsecured debt. However, you can have debt ranging from senior secured all the way down to junior subordinated debt. Historically, what we have seen is the insurance space been a large buyer of investment-grade credit, but pension funds as well. And what we've seen really over the last decade or so is a real increase from mutual funds and ETF flows. Now, that's all domestic accounts as we see them in the U.S. What's also increased over the last decade or so is really the international presence within U.S. domestic investment-grade corporate credit. And that's anywhere from Asia, which includes Japan, China, Taiwan, but also in Europe, not just in the UK, but all across most of the EU. So there's quite a vast breadth of investor base when you think about investment grade market. It sounds like a, a very large and liquid market with many participants, which means technical issues are just as important as fundamental in a market like yours. Definitely agree. And technicals and fundamentals are something that we'll be talking about in depth today. I think that technicals still are dominating over fundamentals, but we may start to be seeing a shift in that, which we can touch on later. I think really the focus over the first quarter of the year has really been what we've seen in the primary and the secondary market as far as flows and volumes. 
And I think you alluded to it earlier, but the general volatility we've seen in investment grade spreads since the banking turmoil started in March. Great. Well, since you've uh, started uh, listing some of the major themes uh, that you've been noticing in the quarter, Justin, why don't we start talking about them one at a time? Let's start with issuance. What are you seeing in the overall market so far in terms of primary issuance? When you say issuance, just for definition's sake, that's primary issuance, which means corporations that are bringing new debt to market for investors to purchase and invest in. And so that's an important part of our market because that's how these investors gain large exposure or desired exposure to certain names, whether it's by specific name, ticker, or rating, or by sector. So the premier market is really one of the big bloodlines within investment-grade corporates. Now, what we've seen over the first quarter, though, particularly at the end of the quarter, was the volatility really started to put a stall in a lot of the primary issuance we've seen. For the first quarter, we've seen just under $400 billion in gross issuance, and that's down 15% from this time last year. And a lot of that, again, can be attributed to the banking turmoil that we saw in March, but we were already trailing last year's first quarter in February as well. There's just not a lot of desire with these higher rates, which really translate to higher coupons for these corporations to issue a large amount of corporate debt when they feel that uh, rates can or will go lower and spreads will remain steady and there'll be lower coupons later on in the year. And so when you look at the issuance among your typical corporate issuers, are you seeing any differentiation between types of issuers by, say, industry? I know that you know the, the financial sector, for example, might be affected more noticeably following Silicon Valley Bank's problems. I think Silicon Valley Bank has definitely affected some of the financial issuance, but I think it's important to think about Silicon Valley Bank happening in early March when typically most issuance for the first quarter in the banking sectors happens in the first month of the year in January. And we saw a very interesting thing happen. And I think, again, it alludes back to what I said about trying to be more patient as an issuer and have lower coupons in your capital stack. But the big six banks, as they're known, and that's Bank of America, JP Morgan, Wells Fargo, City, Morgan Stanley, and Goldman, the big six have really impacted overall supply quite a bit. And so just to, to kind of give you some context here, 27 billion matured in the first quarter for the big six and another 10 billion is set to mature in the second quarter here of 2023 and i think expectations entering into 2023 were for around 100 billion in issuance from these big six banks for the total of the year but juxtaposed to that what we saw in january is really so far we've only seen about 11 billion in issuance from these big six banks so a lot of debt maturing, not really refinancing or re-upping that debt stack. So a lot of the shortfall we've seen in that first quarter that I alluded to earlier, that under $400 billion in issuance, which was down 15% for the quarter, is attributable to the lack of bank issuance. And again, this happened before SVB. And so that's a large part of the market that we didn't see issue in January and actually set us up for a pretty reasonable technical support in the big six banks as you saw some of this dispersion occur between these larger banks and the regionals and super regional banks after SVB. So when you think about the supply, yes, it's been down in industrials, but really the big attributing factor to that is lack of big issuance in the first quarter. So without this more typical primary issuance activity, 
I imagine for these large buyers in the market who want exposure, you're seeing a lot more activity in the secondary market. Talk to us a little bit about trading volumes. So trading volumes for the first quarter hit a new all-time quarterly record of around $1.91 trillion. And the prior record was around $1.85 trillion in the second quarter of 2020, which of course was really the beginning of the pandemic where we saw massive amounts of issuance. And then that in turn created a lot of secondary turnover. Now, I mentioned that because typically what we see is when primary issuance is high, that portends to larger or higher secondary trading volumes. But I just got through talking about how primary volumes were actually quite low, especially versus last year. So this is an interesting development that we saw over the first quarter. And again, I think part of that surge in volume can be relatively correlated with the surge in volatility caused by SVB, right? So if you break down the index and you focus on the most liquid sectors in the market, financials is really the, the most liquid sector. And a lot of that is banks, banks and insurance. But let's talk about banks here first. And they made up 41% of the trading volumes last quarter, which is well ahead of typical quarters. And then again, to put it in context, financials are only 33% of the index. So they were trading well above their weight in a typical quarter. I think one of the other things that we've seen in this secondary volume and why we saw a spike is that typically when you reach extreme wides in trading spreads, you start to see uh, the market seize up a bit as far as liquidity. But when you think about it really being contained to the financial sector and even more specifically banks and even more specifically the regional banks, and you see how well the big six banks performed on the spread basis throughout the SVB turmoil, then that will instill a little more confidence in the market and you'll see a lot more trading volumes. I mean, that's what we're seeing here. So to take a step back, the net change in the index over the quarter was just around five or six basis points, but it had a range of 50 basis points and it snapped back because it really isolated that regional bank contagion that we've been talking about because of SVB. So is it safe to say that the worst of the technical volatility, whether it's related to issuance or trading volume, has resumed a more normal pattern or is it still a little subdued? I think that there's been a pretty good return to normalcy. The reversion to the mean is definitely intact in most sectors except for financials. But again, I think it is a little bit more concentrated in these regional banks. Now, as it were, recording this today, on Friday, we have the start of bank earnings, and that will be part of the big six here. On Friday, it'll be Wells Fargo, J.P. Morgan, and Citi, and the weeks coming after that will have more of those super regional and regional banks. And I think the market's really going to try to take, it's not going to be so much about the earnings, but really looking in for the earnings commentary from these issuers to have a better sense of what their deposit inflows or outflows have been, a little bit more granular detail potentially on their commercial real estate portfolio and how they're thinking about potential regulatory debt issuance that may need to be increased given what happened in early March. And so those are some of the themes that we'll be looking for as we see the earnings kick off this Friday. But away from any surprises there, I think there has been somewhat of a return to normalcy. You mentioned before that spreads had been very, uh, wide relative to the risk-free rate. What are you seeing now in spread movement um, in uh, both financials and non-financials? 
I think it's important to look at the overall first quarter moves. And I think one of the things that really stands out here is the move that we've seen in financials versus the rest of other sectors. And those other sectors, uh, again, on the larger end here, communications, even consumer cyclicals, consumer non-cyclicals, general industrials, energy, technology, and utilities. And again, I alluded to that the corporate index is only about five or six basis points wider over the quarter, but the financial sector was around 24 basis points wider, whereas communications, consumer cyclicals, and non-cyclicals were pretty much unchanged to slightly tighter. Energy was the outperformer, almost five basis points tighter. And then you saw technology as one or two basis points wider. So when you think about the dispersion that we're seeing within the spread markets, you look at overall and it's only five or six wider, but there's a lot of dispersion going on within the subsectors. If we dig down even deeper, it's really banks. And again, it's really more of the regional banks that have caused that widening. Let's talk uh, about fundamentals. What are you seeing in, in fundamental issue of credit performance? credit performance, what will you be looking for going forward? Do you have a view on credit performance as we get closer to a recession? Yeah, we're, we're definitely seeing a deterioration in fundamentals over the last few quarters. I think the good news, Jay, is that the deterioration, it's been slow. And I think, you know, balance sheets, when you think generally over the investment grade industrial space, the issuer balance sheets are stronger than they have been going into other past recessions. You're talking about lower interest expense, higher interest coverage ratios, large cash positions. And a lot of this was brought on by the Fed's policy and how low rates got in tight, how tight spreads became and creating this low interest rate environment where you could get really cheap financing as an issuer and have extremely low coupons. And you've had the pandemic in 2020, which caused a lot of issuers to raise cash just because they wanted some type of proverbial war chest. So you're coming into this recession with pretty strong balance sheets. And again, as I said, the last few quarters, we've seen deterioration in fundamentals, but it's been on the slower side. Now, that being said, I think year over year revenues are coming down by single digit percentages from last year. And cash has been declining when you look at it over the last year. And I think that cash has been mainly used for share repurchases. And I, you're seeing leverage starting to tick up as well. And from the margin side of things, you've seen an increase in cost for products as far as the inputs are concerned. And that's mainly because of inflation, which is clearly very topical. Uh, and, but in large part, that's been passed along to the consumer. But I think what we're starting to see is if revenue starts to continue to decline, I think the consumer is going to be less willing to have those costs of the inputs passed on to them. And so you could start to see margins shrink at the issuer level, and that starts to compress the margins at the issuer, and they become less profitable when those costs aren't able to be passed on. So really what we're describing in part here and what we see happening during a recession. Given historical experience in managing investment-grade corporate credit leading up to and during a recession, do you believe that the market is compensating you for the risks that you're taking? And you know, where are you seeing value and what parts of the market have you been avoiding? If you look at it at a very high level, there's two things to look at. There's where we're trading on a spread level and where we're trading on a yield basis. And so let's take a yield basis. If you think about the corporate index on a yield basis, 
and it's traded in a range of five to six percent over the last year. And that's after it trading down to below two percent, right? So when was the last time that we were in this five to six percent range of all in yield for the investment grade corporate market? If you take out a very quick trip during March of 2020, when the entire market blew out for about two weeks, away from that, the last time that we've seen these types of yields is the great financial crisis, call it 2009, 2010. So from that perspective, yields optically look attractive, I think, to the general investor base. If you look at it from a spread basis, we're very much, when you look at the last year or the last five years, we're uh, sort of in a in the middle of the range, right? We traded down into, uh, last year we traded down to 110 at the tights and out to 160, 165 at the wides. And then before that, the range was even wider. But if you take this 140-ish range that we're in now, and that 140 is in basis points, OAS of the, the Barclays corporate index, we're right in the middle of the range. And I think when you take that into account with the all-in yield, the market still looks attractive or reasonable, especially when we think about these fundamentals that, again, are deteriorating, but still relatively positive or strong versus other pre-recessionary environments. But I think that's more of a 35,000 foot view. If we get a little more granular and we talk about the dispersion that we see, I think that you need to look at each individual subsector and recognize what's attractive and what's not. So in financials, which have widened out the most, I do think that there are some opportunities presenting themselves in the banking space. I think the regional market still needs a little bit of time and there's a little more nuance there and time that, uh, to, to play out. And I think there'll be opportunities there. But overall, when you look at historically of where banks are trading, there is an attractiveness of it at this level. I don't think that you need to be very aggressive about it, but I think adding on the margin is reasonable here. I think the same for insurance. Their balance sheets are strong for most of them, and there'll be opportunities there. Where I think there probably is a time to be cautious and maybe lighten up is in technology. Probably some more of the higher quality names that are technology companies, but have more of a retail exposure to them. When you think about computers and chip makers, et cetera, when you think about the lack of spread movement there, I think an opportunity to probably trim some risk there. And although not very exciting, but utilities, I think, offer some good opportunity here to be in a more low vol environment. Also communications. When you think about wireless and wirelines, they've gone through their cycles and I think they've become more utilities than they have any type of consumer product. And energy, I think, is something that probably more of a market weight at this point. It's performed very well. But I think the technicals and the geopolitical landscape make energy relatively stable in this environment. This has been terrific, Justin. I really appreciate what you've brought to this conversation. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? I guess the last thought would just be that I think there's a lot of good opportunities on the horizon with an investment grade credit. I think it takes patience and prudence in order to capture these opportunities. But I think one thing that March has told us is that it's very important to be nimble, flexible, and liquid with some dry powder in order to take advantage of these opportunities when they arise. Take this opportunity to cull through the portfolio and shape it how you want going into recession so that, again, you're positioned nicely to take advantages of the dispersion we think is going to occur here and invest for the longer term. 
Well, thank you again, Justin, for your time and for your insight. Please come back and visit with us soon. Now, we received two listener questions from our last podcast, and Matt Bush provided answers to both of them. The first question is as follows. How closely tied are U.S. interest rates and the U.S. deficit? Matt's answer. In the short run, rates are driven more by monetary policy, the economic outlook, and technical factors. But with fiscal deficits likely to remain wide in coming years, we do expect this will keep Treasury yields higher than they would be if the budget was better balanced. Now, the second question is the following. Is it possible that the yuan could be used as an alternate currency for international transactions? And Matt's answer. The Chinese renminbi is currently present in a small share of foreign exchange transactions, less than 10% of total. While this share will continue to climb with the growth of Chinese international trade and investment, and as a result of bilateral agreements with countries like Saudi Arabia to accept renminbi in payments for oil and other commodities, Chinese capital controls will likely limit its widespread use. Well, thanks again to our listeners for their questions. Thanks to Matt for answering them. And my thanks once again to Justin Takata for joining us on our podcast today. And thanks to all of you who have joined us for our podcast. If you like what you are hearing, please rate us five stars. And if you have any questions for Justin, Matt, or any of our other podcast guests, please send them to macromarkets at guggenheiminvestments.com. And we will do our best to answer them on our future episode or offline. I'm Jay Diamond, and we look forward to gathering again for the next episode of Macro Markets with Guggenheim Investments. In the meantime, for more of our thought leadership, visit GuggenheimInvestments.com slash perspectives. So long. Important notices and disclosures. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal. Stock markets can be volatile. Investments in securities of small and medium capitalization companies may involve greater risk of loss and more abrupt fluctuations in market price than investments in larger companies. The market value of fixed income securities will change in response to interest rate changes and market conditions, among other things. Investments in fixed income instruments are subject to the possibility that interest rates could rise, causing their value to decline. High-yield securities present more liquidity and credit risk than investment-grade bonds, and may be subject to greater volatility. Investors in asset-backed securities, or ABS, including mortgage-backed securities, or MBS, and collateralized loan obligations, or CLOs, generally receive payments that are part interest and part return of principal. These payments may vary based on the rate loans are repaid. Some asset-backed securities may have structures that make their reaction to interest rates and other factors difficult to predict, making their prices volatile, and are subject to liquidity and valuation risk. CLOs bear similar risk to investing in loans directly, such as credit, interest rate, counterparty, prepayment, liquidity and valuation risks. Loans are often below investment grade, may be unrated, and typically offer a fixed or floating interest rate. This podcast is distributed or presented for informational or educational purposes only, and should not be considered a recommendation of any particular security, strategy or investment product, or as investing advice of any kind. This material is not provided in a fiduciary capacity, may not be relied upon for or in connection with the making of investment decisions, and does not constitute a solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. 
The content contained herein is not intended to be and should not be construed as legal or tax advice and or a legal opinion. Always consult a financial tax and or legal professional regarding your specific situation. This podcast contains opinions of the author or speaker, but not necessarily those of Guggenheim Partners or its subsidiaries. The opinions contained herein are subject to change without notice. Forward-looking statements, estimates and certain information contained herein are based upon proprietary and non-proprietary research and other sources. Information contained herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but are not assured as to accuracy. No part of this material may be reproduced or referred to in any form without express written permission of Guggenheim Partners LLC. There is neither representation nor warranty as to the current accuracy of nor liability for decisions based on such information. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Guggenheim Investments represents the investment management businesses of Guggenheim Partners LLC. Securities are distributed by Guggenheim Funds Distributors LLC.